0: Take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 we'll be looking at verses 17 to 20. The title of our sermon is the sweetness of salvation following as I read verses 17 to 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the living God. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones was one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He was born in 1899 and died in 1981. Before becoming a preacher, he was a medical doctor. In fact, uh, he was, had a very promising uh, medical career ahead of him, but the Lord was at work in his heart and had a strong, uh, put a strong desire in his heart for uh, gospel ministry, pastoral ministry. And so he decided to uh, leave medical practice to become a pastor. It was so uh, dramatic that it made the news headlines. That this renowned doctor was going to leave uh, the medical field to pursue pastoral ministry. Uh, He started in Wales. He's from Wales, uh, was from Wales, and uh, and he began pastoring there. And later, he was called to pastor in London. He pastored then in London at Westminster Chapel for nearly thirty years. He's arguably one of the most successful and helpful pastors in England in the twentieth century. His expository sermons can still be listened to today on the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. You can download a podcast and listen to his sermons. He's got a great Welsh accent. Uh, And uh, so he's uh, a powerful preacher. Many commentaries on his uh, sermons from Book of Romans, Ephesians. Um, Just a powerful preacher. No doubt, his ministry was a success. He was a faithful pastor. Many continue to be benefited from his ministry and just his life as well, and his godly example. Uh, Lloyd-Jones got cancer towards the end of his life, and eventually stepped down from preaching at Westminster Chapel. He went about uh, speaking to other pastors, encouraging them, um, and uh, just trying to minister to those who he had poured into in uh, pastoral ministry. Ian Murray, who was Uh, His biographer has written the definitive two-volume biography on Lloyd-Jones, which is phenomenal. It's very good. Anything Ian Murray writes, you should read. He's an incredible biographer. Um, He was mentored by Lloyd-Jones, sat under his preaching there, and eventually wrote this biography. Uh, He recounts a story that has stuck with me for years. I heard him at a conference once, uh, Ian Murray, Uh, Talk about this story, and it just stuck with me. And uh, and it's such a profound uh, window into the way Lloyd Jones thought about his life and his identity. He uh, came to Lloyd Jones uh, towards the end of his life. He wasn't preaching anymore, and Murray asked Lloyd Jones this question: "Do you miss preaching? Do you miss preaching?" And Lloyd-Jones said, no, I never lived for preaching. Wow. One of the greatest preachers did not live for preaching. What a statement. Another time, I don't, it's hard to say whether this happened on the same occasion or later, but they it, it could have happened at the same time. But Murray asked him another question At the very end of his life, and he asked him this How are you coping now that your ministry is so confined? And Lloyd Jones replied in this way Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Then he said, I'm perfectly content. (coughs) Wow, what a life! What an example. Preaching was clearly not his primary identity. Fundamentally, he saw himself as a child of God, as one saved by grace, a sinner saved by grace. He never got over the sweetness of salvation, of his salvation. Both in the more recent life of Martin Lloyd-Jones and in the life of the 72 disciples that Jesus sends out, we too must learn this important lesson. And it is this that it is better to be saved than successful. It is better to be saved than successful. It is most fundamental to find your identity in your relationship to God, not in your current circumstances or your career. Your identity refers to how you think about yourself, how you uh, view yourself. Status, therefore, before God, is more important than your success before men. One writer said this, Jesus reminds them that the greatest blessing is not their power, but their position. Their position before God. You and I must realize that the greatest reason you have to rejoice is that God has elected you for salvation and brought you to see and savor Christ forever. The point of this message is to help you savor the sweetness of your salvation above all else. Last week, we looked at the servants of salvation in verses 1 to 16. Jesus sends out these 70 or 72 uh, disciples to minister, and they bring the gospels, a lesson in evangelism. Now they've returned, and we see the sweetness of salvation. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the sovereignty of God in salvation. But in our text, verses 17 to 20, we want to see three reasons to rejoice in God's work in and through you so that you might be content no matter your present circumstances. It's kind of a mouthful, so I'll give it to you again. (laughs) Three reasons to rejoice in God's work in and through you so that you might be content no matter your present circumstances. Let's first consider the joy of success. The joy of success. Look again at verse seventeen the seventy two returned with joy, saying, "Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name." Now you can imagine the stories these guys had as they came back they 've been given authority over over to heal people, to cast out demons and they get back. I mean, they're pumped up. Uh, they're probably getting back at different times, too. And so, you know, two guys get back, and they're just recounting all that happened. Then another two come, and then another two come, and, another, and they're just like, man, you wouldn't believe it. This demon was in this guy. And I was just like, get out. And he's like, boom, out. And, and just the stuff that, you know, they, they were doing. And uh, who knows? I mean, just, it, it, you would like to be a fly on the wall, and here's so, so, some of these things yeah, I had mine go into the pigs too and jump off a, you know, a thing like Jesus did. You know, I don't know. Uh, we don't know how long this short-term mission trip lasted for them, but uh, they're eventually all back and they're rejoicing. And you know, don't you just know that, and we mentioned this already, that after you share the gospel, after you do some focused ministry, you're pumped up. I mean, you're joyful that you got a chance to share Christ and, and so are they. And they are joyful over their delegated authority and the result that it had. Now, you notice, they don't take credit for themselves. They recognize they were able to do these things, and they say, in your name, in your name. They recognize that what they accomplished in ministry was the result of God's work through them. And so they rejoice in that. The demons were subject to them. And they had great power over them. Now, you can contrast this in Luke or sorry, in Luke volume two in the book of Acts chapter 19 in this fascinating story. In Acts chapter 19, verse 13, we read this. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. <laughs> so careful, you know, make sure you've got the authority before you, these guys are just beat up and humbled. But here, the 70 have the authority to do this. These guys are like, wow, they did it in Jesus' name, so let's try that. And they are overcome. Now, they're, they're rightly excited about what God has done through them. It, it is appropriate to give thanks and be joyful over uh, successful ministry that God works among us. To see sinners repent and believe and be saved through our witness is exciting. Worthy of rejoicing. To rejoice when someone begins to grow and change in their thinking, in their affections, in their acting because of pointed counsel we've given them or reading the Bible with them or pointing them to resources. That's exciting. It's worthy to rejoice in. Or to see our children begin to walk uh, with the Lord independently. How exciting, having poured into them. These are all things we should give thanks for and rejoice in. And Jesus does not rebuke them for their joy. Far from it. Instead, Jesus tells them much more was happening when they were doing ministry. And they couldn't see it. It's as if Jesus will say to them in this next verse, something like this, you were rejoicing in what you saw, and rightly so. But let me pile on and tell you more of what was happening behind the scenes. And so then look at verse 18. So they're all excited about what they saw happening. Jesus then says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now this statement of Jesus has perplexed many. What is he talking about here? What a fascinating statement. Let's start out simply by observing that this is a figure of speech. You can tell that by the word like. Remember, you learned of similes and metaphors. Uh, If something is like something, it means that it is not that thing, but it is similar to that thing. There's some quality being associated between the two. So he's not saying that he literally saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, but this is the descriptor. It was, his fall was, it was, like the quality of lightning. And it's probably not the idea of the brightness, but of the suddenness. You think an unexpectedness, right, of lightning, though it strikes. You don't know where it's going to strike. It's sudden. It's fast. But of course, that's only a start. What What is he talking about? What does this fall of Satan refer to? And for this, we need a little history lesson on Satan. So roll up your sleeves, okay? We're going to just take a little detour. We're going to get on the rest stop and just look at a little theology of Satan here briefly to orient us so that we can better understand what is being said here. Satan is a created angel who was originally very good. All of God's creation was very good. Genesis 1.31. He, along with all the other angels, were created during the creation week, likely at the early part of that, Yet Satan became proud and sinned against God. Well, you can read about that. Uh, We derive that um, doctrine from largely two passages, uh, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, and then alluded to in the beginning of Revelation 12. But by Genesis 3, verse 1, we know that he has fallen, sinned against God, when he comes to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, The fall of Satan like we said, is described in those passages. And what's interesting about those passages, Ezekiel 28, it's really talking about the king of Tyre. Uh, However, the way that it's being discussed, it seems as though Ezekiel is portraying the king of Tyre as being empowered by an evil being, Uh, that he is satanically empowered to do what he's doing. And so that's why we look at that passage to derive theology about Satan because though it is talking about a human king, the king of Tyre, he's satanically inspired. And so there is a parallel between what he's going to do and what Satan has done. And so we learn about the fall. Another passage like that is Isaiah 14 and it's about the future king of Babylon. And the same thing seems to be happening there where though it's talking about a human king, he's empowered by Satan to do his work. And so we learn... uh, more about this fall of Satan and his sinfulness. We get some of the origin story of Satan through uh, those stories, through those passages. Uh, Of course, in the beginning of Revelation 12, a very picturesque passage, um, we learn as well, uh, verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, usually a reference to angels, stars, uh, and cast them to the earth. So, seems to be allusion as well to the fall of Satan and the angels with him, those non-elect angels, whom now we call demons. Um, Satan's fall into sin, however, uh, does not mean... Actually, let me back up for one second. After the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, um, through the deception of Eve, God curses Satan. You can read about that in Genesis 3.15. There's a curse put on the serpent. Then Satan's fall into sin, Well, we have to point out, does not mean he does not have access to heaven. Uh, he, he's not kicked out of heaven permanently at that point after Satan's fall, he is still summoned by God to heaven in the book of Job. Now, it appears in the book of Job that it's not that Satan can just kind of walk in whenever he wants, like he has a key card to open the door. It is, the word used is like he is summoned by God, and so he has to obey, and he comes before God. He's also seen accusing the high priest Joshua in Zechariah 3 before God. He also accuses believers in the book of Revelation and he's also included in the principalities and powers in the heavenlies in Ephesians six. Now we learn then, if you fast forward, to the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, and now the 70, that during this public ministry we see uh, Satan's power diminished during this public ministry through the casting out of demons. Uh, one example is Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. He says, Jesus says, But if by the Spirit of God uh, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And so there's this diminishing of Satan's power during the ministry of Jesus. And then, of course, Satan is defeated at the cross. I mean, there's so many places we could go to see this concept. Here's just one, Uh, Colossians chapter 2. John's gospel lists this quite a bit, develops this theme. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ that is. So he's disarmed them, put them to shame. Right? John says, First John, that Jesus came for this purpose to uh, defeat the works of the devil, destroy the works of the devil. And yet Satan, we learn, still roams about even now seeking to destroy and devour, according to 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He is on the loose. Though defeated, he is dangerous and deceptive. Fast forward then into the future, even to us, and the Bible talks about a, uh, a seven-year period of God's wrath coming upon the earth. We call it the tribulation. We call it Jacob's trouble. And in that time, we learn that at the midpoint of that time, three and a half years in, Satan is cast out of heaven finally. And we read of that in Revelation chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And how short is that time? About three and a half years. And he's going to go on a final rampage in those three and a half years. And after that time, Christ will return to the Mount of Olives. He will set up his kingdom. At the very beginning of that, however, Revelation 20 tells us that Satan will be cast into the abyss at the beginning of Christ's millennial kingdom and will be inactive during the entirety of those thousand years, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a 1,000 years and threw him into the pit and, it sh- and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the 1,000 years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And so that 1,000 years, he's t- completely inactive, uh, and then he's released at the very end to show that we're gonna have no repeat of Genesis 3 whereas the first Adam uh, failed and sinned when tempted by the devil, the second and last Adam will not be deceived and will crush the serpent fully and finally. There will be no more repeat of this, but we will then enter into the eternal state, but not until Satan is then cast into the lake of fire fully and finally. And so that is the, that is the story of Satan in a nutshell. Now, we need that for our framework in order to consider that there have been many battles throughout history in the cosmic war against God and Satan. And, and don't in any way think that God and Satan are equals. No, not at all. Satan is under the sovereign will of God. He's a created being. And yet there are many battles along the way. And so come back to Luke chapter 10, if you were flipping around, and we think, what is he talking about here? Is he talking about that first initial fall in the creation week. And I don't think he is. Uh, It doesn't seem to fit the context that Jesus would just randomly tell them about Satan's fall at this point. It seems to be contextually located in something that the disciples are doing, something that these 70 have been doing, that Jesus says this to them. That's the context he seems to be giving them a glimpse into the unseen realm and the true effect their ministry was having in the demonic world. Yeah, one writer, Liam Morris, he says this, a defeat as uh, sudden and unexpected to the forces of evil as a flash of lightning. And that's how he's describing this. And, and I think the best way to view this is most likely that we could put it maybe as a combination of when the disciples are doing this work of casting out demons— and liberating people from demons, and seeing people saved, Jesus is saying, you are seeing, it's like a lightning strike each time. Satan is being hindered and defeated. But it's not that final definitive defeat, though it is definite. It is real. But it's one in an ongoing series of battles, and it's also a foreshadowing, a looking forward to that ultimate defeat of Satan in the end. Tom Schreiner puts it like this, the fundamental defeat of Satan takes place, of course, at the cross, but this is an anticipation of what will be accomplished at the cross. And so, the success, one writer says this, Matt Wehmeyer, he says the success of the 70 was viewed by Jesus as a symbol and earnest of the complete and future overthrow of Satan. So, I believe that what he's talking about here is something he's, another, I think the best way to think about it is this. They're going, man, it was incredible. Demons were coming out. They were listening to us in your name, Lord, and people were being saved and, and they were just, it was incredible. And he's saying, you, you didn't even see it all. You saw with your eyes. Let me show you what was happening behind the scenes. You were uh, affecting great losses upon Satan, and attacking him, and and here's the way he describes it, and it is just an indication of what is ultimately going to happen to Satan. Uh, Paul, in Romans, gives us this interesting statement, Romans 16, at the very end of the book, about the defeat of Satan. Romans 16, verse 20. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, remember in Genesis 3.15, it says that the seed of the woman, the Messiah, will crush the head of the serpent. Now, Paul is saying that the collective people of God will soon crush the head of Satan. And we know in scripture that there's this connection between the Messiah and his people, uh, this corporate solidarity. So, it is true that Christ defeated Satan at the cross, and yet, Paul is saying, after that, you will... God will so soon crush Satan under your feet. So there's another, like, final defeat. So that's this concept that the Bible seems to give us of these multiple battles along the way. And I think that's what he's doing here. All okay, right, I hope I've solved that all for you. <laughs> Come talk to me afterward if I haven't. Um, I had to spend a lot of time on that, so I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> so I think here's the good application, though, right? If, if, you've, lost, if you've lost me, or if I've lost you, rather, Come back for a second. Here's where I think the application lies for us. When we do ministry, when we serve God by the strength that he supplies, know this, dear Christian, there is more going on than you can see with your eyes. There is more happening that God is doing than you can see with the eyes of sight. But the eyes of faith show more that's happening. We know our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers, principalities. Paul will say it in Corinthians that when we gather for worship, angels are watching. He sa- he'll say, like, hey, make sure that you just remember that, you know, the angels are watching. It's like a motivation for, like, your holiness in the corporate gathering. You're like, they're watching me. should have dressed better. Yes, I know. But just think about this. It matters more than you know when you come to corporate worship and how you worship. It matters more than you know when you share the gospel. It matters more than you know when you counsel someone with the scriptures. It matters more than you know when you sacrificially serve others in the name of Christ. It matters more than you know when you pursue integrity in your job, when you uh, seek to live a consistent life in your home and outside of your home. It matters. It matters. Now, you may not see all those ramifications, but Jesus is pulling back the curtain saying, you guys are rejoicing in the success that you're seeing? You should be rejoicing even more in that because this is what was happening. I mean, they must have been blown away by this. This is also a good reminder for us that when we don't see immediate results with our eyes and apparent success, it doesn't mean that something is not happening truly in God's eyes. If we are being faithful to do what God calls us to do, then know that great things are happening behind the scenes. And so this is the joy of spiritual success, the joy of success in ministry. Secondly, let's consider the joy of security, the joy of security. Look at verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus reminds them of the authority he's given to them. And once again, it brings up more questions in our minds. He had deputized them for their mission, giving them this authority. And yet, what is he talking about here? Serpents and scorpions. Uh, Is he talking about actual serpents and scorpions? This is a special thing believers have. I want to assure you that we don't take this to mean that we should have snake handling services here at Emmanuel Bible Church. Don't worry, Uh, we're not going to hand you a snake. Um, you know, it's a funny story. Uh, John Kratz, the pastor of Faith Bible, this is for you, Joel. Uh, he really does not like snakes. He's very afraid of them. And one time at a missions conference, one of the, member, one of the uh, missionaries that, w- that we supported uh, was giving a report and was uh, behind the pulpit. And it wasn't like our pulpit where you can see through it. It was like a wooden pulpit. And uh, they had a, a snake, a f- toy snake, that they hid underneath the pulpit. And as they're giving their report, John's sitting on the front row hearing this missionary report. And I'm in the middle of it. she took the snake and threw it at John. <laughs> and he went, ah! <laughs> and jumped up. So uh, don't worry, that won't happen here. Well, maybe a fake one, but um, so wh- what is he saying here? The snakes and, and scorpions. Some will point to Paul's experience on the island of Malta in Acts 28. Paul gets bit by a snake and he lives, and uh, it gives testimony to the gospel. That may be related to this, but I think that if you follow the context, you know, like if you're standing on a bridge and you see water flowing this way, uh, and you see water flowing that way on the other side, and you're standing on the bridge, you, you can't see down, where do you think the water's flowing? Probably the same direction, right? And that's how we do context. We see, all right, what is this passage about? Well, he gave them authority over demons. They did have authority over demons. Then he shows them, Behind the scenes, you are effecting great losses against Satan, and now he tells them, I've given you this authority, likely the authority they've already used, and it's to tread on serpents and scorpions. So and the power of the enemy. So what what is he referring to here? I think he's referring to Satan and demons. That seems to fit the context. Satan is many times referred to as a serpent in scripture. And demons are later, though Revelation has not been written yet, uh, in Luke's context, Revelation 9 speaks about these creatures that are demonically um, described as scorpions, or having the power like scorpions, rather. Demons are pictured like scorpions. So it seems that he's still talking about the same thing here, and... As one writer put it like this, they have the right to overcome hostile creation as represented by serpents and scorpions as well as to overcome the enemy's power in allusion to Satan. Such forces and what they represent can be opposed and crushed. Now, there's probably something unique, there is something unique about the authority that these men are given that's not necessarily something that is given to every single believer who's ever lived, The apostles have this kind of authority. They have this authority. But certainly the application, I think, remains for us when he says, and nothing shall hurt you. I think this is part of the timeless truth as he's giving them assurance here of their security. We pointed out already, Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's the promise of victory for believers over the demonic world. Listen to some passages here. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 1 John 4.4 4, Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know, Jesus assured his disciples later in Luke 21.18 and he says, Not a hair of your head will perish. But it's in the context of him talking about they're being persecuted and even killed. So you're like, how can you be killed and yet not a hair of your head perish? And this helps us a lot because what we see here is that this is the ultimate security. Of course, a James can be killed by Herod in Acts 12. Paul can suffer greatly in his ministry and be hindered by Satan and have a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan. And yet they all conquer, they're all secure. Paul will speak of this in Romans chapter 8 as he crescendos that great chapter. And he says this in 837, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord." He's talking about these, including the demonic forces in this. And right before this, in verse 36, he quotes a psalm that says this, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So you have to put these two together that while Christians may be persecuted and even suffer death, they're totally safe. They're totally secure. You are secure in Christ. And here's something to rejoice over. Jesus said to them, nothing shall hurt you. And yet many or most of these disciples would be persecuted even unto death, but they were not hurt. And so what an encouragement this is to us. Our hope extends beyond this life. You may get cancer, but nothing shall hurt you. Jesus says, you may lose your job, but nothing shall hurt you. You may experience pain and loss, but nothing shall hurt you. This is the promise of security and what joy it can bring no matter what. Jesus has given them this unique authority over these demons. And yet, for all believers, we know that nothing shall ultimately hurt us. All things must work for good to those that love God. God will ensure it. Nothing can successfully be against us, we might say, to use Paul's language in Romans 8. And so we are secure. So we have the joy of success. We have the joy of security. But we have an even greater joy. And it culminates and crescendos in verse 20. And Jesus highlights this for them. And here we have the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the sub- spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. While these other reasons are legitimate reasons to rejoice, they pale in comparison to this final reason. What is Jesus not saying? Well, he's not saying, guys, stop rejoicing. Stop it. <laughs> you know, don't, don't be excited about these things. No, that, that, that's very, that would be a strange way to take this. No, he's not, he's not saying for them not to rejoice in what they've been rejoicing in, but rather to recognize there is something even greater to rejoice in, something even sweeter than success in ministry, and it is their salvation. What should be their primary joy is Jesus' focus. More the ministry suggests, you should rejoice in your status before God. Notice how he says it. Of course, he's talking about joy in your salvation, but he says it like this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. How personal. How personal. Your name. What is your name? God knows your name even if you've changed it. <laughs> and now, in everyday Greek, this, this word um, written, it, it referred to making a list in a public register or a census. And so this is like imagining a book of, he- uh, of um, heaven's citizens, uh, the registry of heaven, we might say, or if we compare with other texts, the book of life, the book of life. There's a lot of passages that speak about this. Um, Let me give you you one in Revelation. This is a a fascinating study to go through. Revelation 13, verse 7 and 8. He says, also, it was allowed, this is the, the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And this is a very helpful passage to pull together this, which would be a fun study to walk through uh, how this theme of the book of life is developed. But notice that, when were people's names written in this? You know, we might think that it was when someone repented and believed and then you can just imagine like a book in heaven and it's just like an invisible hand is like etching their name in because they believe. But no, that's not what the text says. It's it's actually that their names are already written in heaven, which ensures that they would believe one day. He says everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. So he's talking about people are going to worship the beast. They're going to worship false religion. They're not going to submit to God. Why? Because their names were not written. And when were those other names written? Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So God wrote people's names in this book and he did it before the foundation of the world. Is your name in that registry? The names in this book represent those whom God has sovereignly, unconditionally chosen for salvation before he created anything or anyone. Can you be taken out of this book? No, no, you could, sur- you could sooner ungod God than you could take your name out of this book. And because their names were written before the foundation of the world, no sin committed could bring you out of this book because God put you in this book before you were born, before you were created. And so this gives us great encouragement that no matter what, you can rejoice in your salvation. This applies to those who seem extremely successful in this life as well as those who do not. You could both be in the book of life and rejoice. This applies to those who are suffering greatly in present circumstances and those who are satisfied in present circumstances. And yet both can be written in the book of life and rejoice. Both can still rejoice that their names are written in heaven's registry. Whether you're the apostle Paul or the thief on the cross, you can rejoice that your name is written in heaven. J.C. Rowell says, He that has gifts without grace is dead in sins, however splendid his gifts may be. But he that has grace without gifts is alive to God, however unlearned and ignorant he may appear to man. I think this is a recipe for long-term and lasting joy in ministry. It's not to get too wrapped up in all that we've done, all of our successes but rather to just marvel again and again that God saved us, that he he rescued us. I think the the Luke 10, 20 of the Old Testament is is Jeremiah chapter nine. Jeremiah chapter nine, verse 23 and 24, which says this, Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. We rejoice that we know the Lord, that we have come to know him, that God has chosen us. Do you know that your name is written in heaven? You may have great gifts and be admired, but be like Judas. Yet, on the other hand, you may have nothing and be like Lazarus in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, poor and lacking in this life, and yet be written in heaven and enjoy it when you die. Jesus is giving them incredible encouragement here to rejoice in God's sovereign election of you before the foundation of the world This is the fountain and foundation from which all the blessings of salvation have sprung. That God etched your name in the book of life. Because your name is written in heaven, you have redemption, you have expiation, you have propitiation, you have reconciliation, you have atonement you have justification, you have sanctification, you have glorification, you have adoption, you have union with Christ, you have communion with Christ, you have eternal life. You're an heir with Christ, a co-heir. You will inherit the earth. I mean, on and on and on and on. Every blessing comes because God chose you, because he set his love upon you. He sa- we might say it like this, he set his love upon you, and then he wrote your name down. I want that one. How personal is salvation? Paul will say in Galatians 2.20 that he loved me and gave himself for me. He can be that personal because God knows names, not faceless people, generic, but knows you. David Gooding wrote this in his commentary. He says, unless we are certain of this, we would not be able to rejoice at all. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If you're uncertain about this, then it's hard to find joy in anything. You know, uh, when I was in college, I remember, you know, applying. I didn't have great grades when I went into college from high school. And so, uh, you know, you get worried, you know, am I going to actually get in this school I want to get into? And you apply and you think, you know, how's this going to work? And, uh, I got in, you know, but I learned later at the time, apparently, people said, I don't know if this was true, but people said, oh, it's so easy to get into the school I went to, and, um, and I heard a story once, and I don't even know if it's true, but it makes a good illustration, uh, that they said, oh, yeah, my friend, he applied his dog to get into the school and got him in. You know, they put his dog's name down and made up a fake thing and story and just submitted it, and, you know, his dog got in. I was like, wow, you know, that makes me feel really great that I got into the school, but... <laughs> but it made me think, you know, wow, they're accepting anyone. You know, anyone can, you just got to apply, and you're in. And I think that's exactly the way it is with salvation. Whoever will come, you can get in. Why? Because it's not about your transcripts. It's not about, uh, it's not about your grades. It's not about your achievements. No, you just apply to Christ by faith, and you're in. There's no question about Will I be accepted by him? No, far from it. He will take all who come to him. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 37. And so apply to him if you've never applied to Christ by faith. Oh, you must tell him all of your sins. You must include your transcript of sin and repent of it. But fear not, it will not keep you from acceptance before Christ. You know, he will take you. He will take you if you will come to him. Another good application for us, I think, as we wrap this point up, is that it helps us to think about our fundamental identity, how we think about ourselves. You know, we have multiple identities that we, that we think about. We, we, we want to have certain identities and certain ways that we think about ourselves and are perceived by others. We might think I'm a successful spouse, or I'm a successful parent. Uh, I have I have a successful career, or I will leave a lasting legacy, or I have a great ministry, or many other things. But these cannot be your fundamental identity. Your fundamental identity must be that I know God, or even better, I've been known by God. That God knows me. This view of ourselves will promote humility. It will promote joy. It'll promote unity in the church. It'll promote thankfulness. Let me just give you a hint at this. Paul will apply this text in a very interesting way in Philippians chapter uh, four. Philippians chapter four, with two women who were having a conflict in the church. And he says this in Philippians 4, verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So these are two ladies he knows are having a conflict in the church. Paul's heard about it. And so when he writes the letter, they get immortalized in scripture for their conflict. How, How about that? You know, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, listen to what he says, whose names are in the book of life. Here's his motivation. Ladies, you've got to work this out. Your names are in the book of life. That's his motivation. He's saying, you've been saved. You've been, God is saved. How is this conflict that important? Remember, both of you are fellow workers in the gospel. Both of you have been called out by God before the foundation of the world. You're written in the book of life. Can you not be unified over this issue? And so I just point that out, like apply that to your marriage, apply that to your friendships, whatever this is how practical the gospel gets in our lives when we think about our identity and who we are and how it helps us in the everyday life. You might be thinking, how can I know that my name is written in heaven, that it's in the book of life? Well, have you trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, for a righteous standing before God? Have you stopped trusting in yourself for righteousness, depending on your works, abandon all hope outside of Christ to be right with God? Well, then your, book, then your name is in the book. Have you seen the fruit of repentance born in your life, John the Baptist speaks of? Then your name is in the book of life. Peter calls us to make our calling and election sure and we, we can see the fruit that God has produced in us and that we are trusting in Christ. What is your posture right now? Not, not, look, not looking to the past, but saying, do I trust Christ right now? Is he my only hope in life and in death? then you can have assurance that your name is written in the book of life. One writer said this, having assurance of your place in glory is much greater than enjoying stellar success in ministry. How can you increase your joy in your salvation? Well, a couple points, and this is actually, this whole message is like a, a big prep for the Lord's Supper, it's so good. Uh, Here's a few things that we can do to increase our joy. You can look inward, backward, forward, and upward. You can look back, inward rather, and say, look at your sinful heart and see the, the sinfulness that is there. It's ugly. It's dishonoring God, and yet God still has you in the book of life. Oh, what cause for joy? Despite what I deserve, Here's what I'm going to receive. You could look backward to the person and work of Christ and marvel at your name being on his mind and in his heart as he bore the wrath of God for you. You can look forward to your own coming death and think, though I will die, my name is written in the book of life. You can look upward to the hope of heaven and your new heavens and new earth and your place there because you're in the registry. The gospel is always relevant to us. It's been said that the gospel is not the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It's not only for unbelievers to get saved, but for believers to be sanctified. Because the gospel is the good news about God and our knowing who God is and enjoying him forever. The gospel is our hope in a hopeless and hard world. And so Jesus reminds them that this is to be our great joy. Regardless of everything else, whether your life is a great success or very, very difficult, you can still rejoice that your name is written in heaven. As we conclude, listen to another famous preacher in London who savored this text and spoke of it. Charles Spurgeon said this in a sermon on this text, starting about speaking about the joy of success and then moving towards the joy of salvation. He says about the joy of success, he says, once again, this joy the joy of success. If we were to be filled with it to overflowing, would be found unable to bear the, stain, the strain of trial, trouble, temptation, and especially of death. Take the last. Will any man, when he lies dying, be able to console himself with this reflection? I have testified of Christ to others. Will he not need some other confidence? Will he not require something far more personal? Will this be the sweet morsel that shall stay the hunger of his soul? What if he had power over devils? May not devils yet obtain power over him? Will will he be able to cheer himself amidst death's chilly waves with this boast? I was a loud talker and a mighty professor, and the cause of Christ grew under my leadership. No, in such times as that, we shall never want surer consolations and diviner stays than these. Unhappy will be well, unhappy will he be who has accustomed himself to live upon the excitement of crowded meetings or upon the laudatory criticisms of friends, in other words, telling them telling you great things about yourself. Gifts, attainments, labors, successes, all heaped together cannot support a soul on the verge of eternity. Herein the bedridden sister may rejoice. Herein the incurably diseased may exalt. The child of God whose tongue is silenced by infirmity and whose conflicts with devils are confined to his closet and his chamber may come in and say, I too can rejoice that my name is written in heaven. Amen, what a good word. That is what we want to be the consolation on our deathbed. My name is written in heaven regardless of what has happened. I don't depend on those things. I don't look to those things. Those things don't commend me or condemn me before God. My name is written. And so let me end on this message on the sweetness of salvation. With This quote, to be God's choice is the choicest of delights. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the preciousness of salvation, the sweetness of it. And Lord, give us a greater taste of what you've done in our lives. May we have assurance of our place in heaven and may that just fill us with such joy regardless of our circumstances, whether suffering or success. And may we exalt in Christ for the work that that allows us to be a citizen of heaven and of the new earth. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We come now to...